Welcome in to a new edition of the Locked on Knicks podcast. I might sound a little bit more excited than usual, Alex, and that's because the Knicks are coming off what I would consider their best win of the season, 125 to 123 over the Houston Rockets. And most importantly, it was because of the young guns. Yep, and the Knicks won in in great fashion behind R.J. Barrett, who scored a a clutch bucket, Frank Nilakina playing some good defense, Mitchell Robinson looking like a man among boys, and for today, at least, we are going to completely ignore everything but that next on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Knicks is on rebound, back up off the glass, it's good. RJ Burr brings the Knicks to the road. What he does is contagious. Oh, Robinson with a catch and slam. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Shaw. Across the river, he's Alex Wolf, where I'm sure we were in simultaneous joy as the Knicks got an upset win over the surging Houston Rockets. They've, at least over the last 12 games or so, been the best, if if not one of the top three or so teams in the NBA. I, w- I would argue the best over the last 12 games. They've just been killing teams. And the Knicks shut it all down, a 125-123 to 123 win, led by an awesome performance by R.J. Barrett. And I-, I would say, most importantly, just an overall youth movement. Frank Nilakina, Mitchell Robinson also playing pivotal roles. It was essentially what we've been asking for all season, Alex, and this was the best possible version of it. Yeah, like, you love to see the young players, you know, coming up clutch like this and being trusted to win a game. Uh, you almost wonder, so, I mean, we may as well just get the, the one news item out of the way real quick. It was Leon Rose's first day on the job yesterday, and, you know, he got plenty of camera coverage uh, during the broadcast and looked pretty happy with the results of everything. He was sitting next to Scott Perry. They were they were pretty buddy-buddy for someone who's allegedly maybe on his way out in Perry. So it might just be, you know, them just being amicable for now. I mean, I would imagine that Perry would be trying to endear himself in any way possible to Rose to potentially keep a job. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it almost felt, you know, there were reports that the Knicks were going to start looking to play the younger players more under Rose and that there might be a directive for that. And you could almost feel it uh, with, how this game shook out, you know, it was like felt kind of unfamiliar down the stretch. You had Frank Nilakina closing instead of Alfred Payton. And it was partly because Frank was playing great, but you know, a lot of times we'll see, even if Frank is playing great, Alfred would still be given the ability to close the game. Uh, he had RJ Barrett closing and taking a pivotal shot down the stretch or shots, I should say, uh, and being trusted to do so. He wasn't getting, you know, harassed by, Julius Randle or Peyton or whatever to give up the ball late in the game. And then he came through in the clutch and delivered a shot to put the Knicks up by three. And, uh, you know, ultimately they wound up winning by two and, it, you know, cause of some free throws and all that. And, uh, you know, then you had Frank Nilakina closing the game for Alfred Payton and, you know, he provided some, I think really great defense down the stretch. I've had people talking to me on Twitter today and yesterday saying, Oh, his defense wasn't that good. I'm like, I don't know what you're expecting against Russell Westbrook, but that's a dude that averages over 30 points a game, 
you know, at his best. And I thought Frank beat him up more than well enough down the stretch. Um, and some other people uh, sort of dropped the ball on some switches and stuff. But, uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. It was exactly the type of game that, that we've been waiting for. You know, we've been waiting for this, like, statement, like, Knicks youth game where we could com- comfortably say, like, the the young players won this game. And on top of it, it was against a really good team that's been playing great lately. And, you know, you had Mitchell Robinson out there, too, closing the game, and he still, you know, managed to not foul very much. He only had one foul for the whole game and, you know, put up 12 points, 13 rebounds. Surprisingly, didn't block a shot, uh, but definitely impacted things on the inside, in particular with his rebounding. Uh, he had five offensive boards and a number of times looked like a – like a high school kid playing against middle schoolers, you know, with how easily he was able to to get rebounds and finish inside against the small ball of uh, Houston. So it, it was, you know, broad strokes takeaway, Gavin. I loved this game. I thought it was maybe my favorite game of the whole season just because of, A, it was a win. B, it was against a good team. C, it's how they got the win, that it was centered on their arguably their three best young players. Yeah, you know, it comes a, a day after uh, the Knicks in the official uh, Locked On Podcast Network power poll were voted the worst team in the NBA. So a little bit, a little bit of a spite win for the Knicks, I think. I yeah, think that's the Locked cool. On Podcasters. Yeah, them. I, I, yeah I, I had them as the third worst team, I, and I thought I was being pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, I think we're catching some unnecessary bullets here. I think that's people just hating on the Knicks organization rather than the actual product on the court, because like. The Knicks, since Miller took over, have been almost like a playoff team. I did the math. It was they're like uh, they're like fifteen and fifteen and twenty four or something since Miller took over. I mean, that's like perfectly respectable, man. I don't I don't know why people are, would say that the Knicks are the worst team in the NBA. Yeah, I think I, I would I would say they're one of the five worst teams in the NBA, but they they're not. I mean, they that's are the thing. Number. <laughs> they they played the Super Bowl against the Warriors and it went to overtime and they won. So they were, they were they were better than the Warriors. That was that was the game to me. And that was when they were both so so bad and I was like, "Okay, we did it." Uh, it was Steph Curry, Klay Thompson um out for the year and Kevin Durant in Brooklyn, uh, officially better than the Warriors and the Warriors are the worst team in the NBA. But not to get too sidetracked because for one night the Knicks looked like one of the best teams in the NBA and it all started with a great game for RJ Barrett 27 points, 5 assists, 5 rebounds in just 30 minutes. It wasn't one of those crazy Fizdalian games where he where he played like all 48 or something like he he was super duper efficient in this one. I and mean, just a number of big time plays and and it felt like um the Rockets were up 7 to 1 early and it just the way I mean, obviously, the, the Knicks played an exceptionally good game against the Bulls, but, um, I mean, the way things have been going of late against a team like the Rockets that has just buried opponents with, with the small ball look, like, that that could have been it for the game. And and RJ, I mean, showed a maturity beyond his years and said, okay, I, I recognize what's happening here. I, I got to take over. And, and against the Rockets team that's honest, in, in some ways – really well built to defend him with all the versatile um, defenders they have along the wing – he, he just, he was dominant. 14 points in that first quarter, got it done in a number of ways, had two threes, had, had this really beautiful shot over James Harden where he got to the middle of the lane with a little reverse spin move, um, hard jump stop on two feet, and then he, he shot over Harden. And, and just the craft the whole game 
from RJ was was really exciting to see. And, and I remember Alex going back to this summer. I, I made sort of an ignorant comment, and I said, look, like, I mean, like, the fact with RJ is, like, he's just not a high-level athlete, and that's, I mean, relative to NBA players, obviously. Like, and he, he's, he's certainly, like, an average to slightly above-average NBA athlete, but I, I just didn't think his stats around the rim were really discouraging to me at Duke. And, and I thought it would translate in him being an ineffectual scorer in the NBA. And, and to be fair, some of that has come true. I mean, I think coming into the last couple of games, he, he was literally the worst guy in the league in terms of shooting percentage around the rim. But what I did underestimate about his game, and I think you noted at the time, you were absolutely right, um, his ability to deaccelerate, which is what makes uh, Luca and James Harden so special, was honestly like pretty close to those guys and I was watching him and I really like I I was watching um the game after the fact on my laptop and I would pause and rewind I'm like okay how is he actually getting by guys and and there was this great possession where Austin Rivers who's underrated as a defender he's really solid was, was just hounding him and RJ would sort of probe stop probe stop and it was the ability to have those quick stops that eventually threw Rivers off his mark on and then he was just too strong and the thing about this Rockets team, we, we were sort of talking about it last podcast where I was saying, look, it's kind of a great matchup for Mitchell Robinson in that they go small, and he's one of the few bigs in the NBA that's mobile enough defensively to not totally get played off the floor in that scenario. It's a real boon for RJ, too, because when he got to the rim, there wasn't that high-level rim protector to alter his shots that we've seen so many times um, kind of mess RJ up because the whole thing with him is he's he's able, he's so strong, even as a teenager, that he can basically get to the basket against anyone. The issue is he usually doesn't do it quickly, and because of that, bigs have a lot of time to recover and alter his shots, and I think that, more than anything else, is why you see the low percentage around the rim for him. But with the Rockets not playing a big, it was a great opportunity for him to take advantage and have a high-scoring game, and I think that's why now two games in a row, We've seen RJ have some of his best performances against the Rockets. And and then the shot down the stretch, I mean, that's something you can't even measure. You can't really explain. It's just a, a kid, again, with maturity beyond his years. I'll, I'll say it falls behind beyond his years. It, it was just a great play. Yeah, and the the thing that was great about this game too versus last week where, you know, you mentioned that we saw some, uh, you know, some kind of similar themes uh, with him and with Mitch in this game, the Big difference, though, with this week was that last week, RJ scored 14 points in the first quarter and then seemed to sort of get frozen out for large stretches of the rest of the game, which was really strange. And uh, in this game, you know, he scored 14 in the first quarter again and was given the opportunity to continue building on that and did. And, you know, he he sat a, he, he played the entire first quarter, so he sat a good portion of the second quarter. So, like, his halftime stats didn't blow you away. Uh, but then, you know, he played a, a good, you know, staggering of minutes in the second half. And every time he came back in, it was like the same thing. He was still being featured and still being allowed to, you know, do what he does best. And it, I think it's pretty easy to see at this point that his best is when he has the ball in his hands. And he's not necessarily – that's not necessarily to say that he's a uh, – I'm trying to think. like a Ball stopper? Example. Yeah, like a like I was trying to Kobe. think just like – yeah, a Kobe. Let's go with that. Yeah, it's not to say that he's like a Kobe, where he needs the ball in his hands because the only thing that he can contribute is shooting and scoring for you. Like, he actively looks to get other people involved, too. And and it seems like that's what he wants to do sometimes. You know, he, he would almost prefer to create something for a teammate than finish it on his own. But he has the smarts to know, like, okay, in this case, I should finish for myself. In this case, I should look for others. And there was even one or two where he sort of, overplayed that a little bit in this game like there was one 
possessions semi-late in the game that I remember where he just kind of like drove into traffic like three rockets and was just like, you could just see with how he was conducting himself driving in there that he didn't have any intention of actually going for a shot. He was literally just trying to be like, I have 20 whatever points. They're going to key to me. I'm just going to drive in here and I want to find a teammate. Uh, and unfortunately they, they got him for held ball. Uh, he just kind of overplayed his hand a little bit and kept the ball a little too loose and wasn't able to make that pass out. But I like where his head's at on a lot of this stuff. You know, he's not, he's not just looking to get his while he's out there. He's very much looking for others. He had probably, probably one of my favorite passes that he's had. I feel like we say this too often. So I, maybe at the end of the season, we can come up with an actual list of our favorite RJ passes for the year. Um, cause there were a few early in the season that really blew me away, but he had one of my favorites for him recently, uh, was he was, uh, he was kind of around the free throw line and oh, the one to Taj. Yes. And he was yeah, sort of probing great. and he was kind of working his way across the circle and like just no look bounced past it to Taj, who it turned out was wide open behind his defender. And, you know, Taj went in for an easy dunk and that was, whew. That was a brilliant pass. I think that was probably probably RJ's second or third assist, and he had four in just the first quarter. He had, um, uh, I think it was 14 points and four assists in that quarter. Um, so, yeah, it was great. Uh, and, you know, he only wound up getting one more assist the rest of the way out, but I think that was in large part because the scoring was so effective. And, you know, not every not every pass turns into an assist. I think he just looks to get the ball moving in certain cases too, which is also refreshing because – you know, as much as Alfred Payton puts up good, you know, counting numbers and is pretty good at penetrating and then kicking out to guys, it feels like he mostly makes passes when he thinks it's going to lead to an assist. Um, whereas RJ will just kind of find whoever, whoever can, you know, create a good situation, even if it means that RJ is only going to get a hockey assist or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, is, I mean, it's to good. that point, he, he had that, um, there was in the third quarter where he was, double or triple teamed in the corner and he kicked off like a beautiful sequence where he just immediately zipped it to Alfred at the top of the, uh, or excuse me, um, at the elbow. And then Alfred just threw it to Taj for a wide open dunk. And, and you and I were sort of talking about that pre-show a little bit, Alex, where it was almost like the Rockets thought they could fluster him by like throwing these hard doubles at him. And I was just thinking like, look, you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> like I think he, they'd have better luck getting in Alfred's head, especially given the height differential between those two, because every time they tried to throw an extra defender at RJ, he'd, he'd just find someone wide open. Like um, there, there was the one player that was really just glaringly bad defense by the Rockets where two guys just rushed RJ right as he got past midcourt. And he, he like, it was almost like disdainful by RJ. He was like, really, you're going to like disrespect me like that. He's, like Mitch was wide open under the basket. He's like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll just throw it to him. And Mitch, just got an easy dunk, but I guess that's that's a good uh, good way to transition because I, I thought you summed it up perfectly. Like Mitch just looked too big at points in this game for the Rockets, and you know what? I, I give the Rockets a little bit of credit and the Knicks a little bit of a negative credit that he didn't have more than 12 points in this one because it, it felt like whenever the Knicks ran pick and roll, the Rockets didn't really have a solution outside of like. I mean, what I would have done in their situation, I think they started doing this a bit more as the game went on, 
is if you see Mitch anywhere close to setting a screen, I'm just dropping way, way back. And if, if whatever Knicks guard who, who's handling wants to shoot a three or an open mid-ranger, just give it to him. Because in the first half, the Knicks were picking them apart on those types of plays. And I, I thought, actually, I know I know we've had some critiques of Mike Miller of late, I mean, specifically because of his rotation, but a really nice, um, I, I don't know, maybe it was just really a, a pick and roll, so I don't know, maybe calling it a set is, uh, is exaggerating things a little bit, but a, a really cool little play designed by Miller where he had the floor sort of spaced with shooting. Like obviously it would have been better if there were better shooters on the roster, but floor well spaced. And he has Mitch set a screen for RJ about 28 feet out and Mitch, instead of like really waiting on the screen, he sort of fakes it. Like he slips before the defender even makes contact with him. And by setting it that far out, he had such a far runway. I think it was PJ Tucker guarding him. And you could see Tucker was kind of trying to sit back on it because he's thinking like, look, RJ Barrett isn't like, isn't Steph Curry. He's not going to pull up from 26 feet and bang one in my face. But the way Miller did it by putting them that far out, Mitch had time to build momentum. And you saw PJ just got blown by. Like he didn't have a chance to keep up with Mitch and RJ just threw him a lob. And it, it was also one of the, one of the easier dunks that Mitch had all game. I mean, that was a great play. And then the other one that stood out to me was um, Kevin Knox pretty badly missed the mid range jumper and Mitch just catches it. And it was, it was sort of Shaq esque where he almost takes a second to contemplate what he's going to do. And then just one handed jam right in Eric Gordon's face. And it was awesome just for the attitude involved in it you, you could see Mitch like sort of gave Gordon a little look like come on you're too small you're not going to do anything about that so I, I just thought a fun game for Mitchell Robinson yeah I loved that last play you just described it was so it's uh, I mean because Mitch can sort of even do that against bigger centers on some nights you know where he just sort of imposes his will particularly on the offensive glass you know he just has really good timing and then that second leaping ability makes it you know, super easy for him to get back up and, um, you know, throw down a quick dunk or, or just a quick putback or whatever. And in that case, he just like, that was, that was what I was talking about before where it looked like he was a, you know, a, a high schooler playing among middle schoolers or something. Like it was, it, you know, it was like the big cousin, you know, that was at the family barbecue that, you know, was playing against all of his little cousins or whatever and just decided to throw one down on them because, it was it was insane, and you know there were, to your point, maybe there were more opportunities they could have potentially hit him with. Um, I think ultimately the Knicks wound up not doing that quite as much because everybody was sort of eating like for the Knicks. Like they shot forty eight and a half percent as a team and forty percent from three, which are both really good numbers for them. So I think ultimately the Knicks just sort of decided to just let everybody cook uh, rather than looking for Mitch specifically. But it would have been great to see more of it. Um, ultimately though, it was a fantastic game. Like there's no, there's no arguing it. You know, he, he didn't, he didn't fall prey to any of the stuff that small ball wants to happen. Like he didn't fall prey to having a smaller guy on him and getting the ball stripped. Um, he didn't, you know, lose guys all around the perimeter or whatever. And, you know, have that affect him. Like he struck a really good balance as usual of, disrupting the pain enough while still keeping an eye on the perimeter since the Rockets basically play five out basketball. Um, so I, I thought it was really good. And the Knicks, I actually thought the Knicks in general, like to their credit, you know, the, there are a lot of games where the Knicks look really lost as far as defensive rotations are concerned. There were some times where guys got open looks in this game and that's kind of 
inevitable against the Rockets. But I thought in general, like, the Knicks did a pretty good job of closing out on everybody in this game. Uh, and I thought that was a, a big, you know, portion of the reason why, like, the Rockets took 56 attempts from three out of 94 total shots. And they only shot uh, 36% from three, which if you can hold this particular, like, for any given team in the NBA, that might be an acceptable number to get a win. But if you can hold this particular team that shoots so many threes to 36% for the game, you're actually, I think, in pretty good shape. And, you know, obviously the Knicks are the Knicks, and they're not as good as the Rockets, so they made it a game late and almost made the comeback. But, um, you know, I thought that the Knicks did a really admirable job on defense with, you know, flustering the Rockets in the right way. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I thought it was about about the best that they could do it. And we, we were debating this a little bit pre-show. I mean, look, like on, on 56 shots, like I actually think that's that's not a bad mark from distance because I mean, what is, that translates into about like 54% of twos. And if you make that, I mean, I think that's that's sort of the brilliance of what the Rockets are doing. Like if you if you get off that many threes, you don't have to shoot that that well for it to be like I mean, again, to, to lead to like potentially the best offense in basketball but I mean to your point it, it was it was that the Knicks they forced long stretches of ineptitude for the Rockets and it, it took the Rockets getting really really hot like Daniel House in particular just went off in like the second quarter to get the Rockets back into it. and then Harden sort of started figuring things out late even though he finished just three for 13 from distance uh but it was there were there were long stretches where the Knicks were really good on the perimeter and Again, just it's such a luxury against the Rockets, and and this is sort of again I I, I noted it earlier in the podcast, but I think the Knicks are in like a lot of ways like for a very bad team against a very good team in the Rockets, a really good matchup for them, and that they, they have bigs like Randall and Portis that are sort of tweeners and aren't great defenders, but are semi comfortable playing against smaller guys on the perimeter just because they're they're nominally they're kind of athletic. For their size, and obviously Mitch is someone who really excels in that spot. So I just think it's sort of it's sort of a well-designed group to go against the Rockets. And you were getting a little bit into Frank Nelakina's defense down the stretch. I, I thought again he had some really good moments in this one. Um, I mean, not even not even just on the final plays against Russ, where I think as you as you put it, more often than not he wasn't really defending him. He was kind of getting switched off on screens that the Rockets were really smart about how they set and when they set, and Russ was just kind of toasting Mo Harkless. But I thought all in all there were there were some excellent moments for Frank. He he took that charge on Russ in the first quarter. There was a play where Russ tried to drive on him and Frank really frustrated him. But all in all, I was I was almost more impressed with Frank's offense than his defense in this one. Um, he hit his first shot of the game. Then he had this um, no-look, like, lefty handoff to Wayne Ellington for a triple. And, again, like, people would be, like, maybe fairly saying, like, all right, you're just sort of, like, fetishizing everything Frank does. Like, <laughs> it's just kind of a simple play. But I think that, I think there's an art to a good handoff in basketball. And the way Frank did it, just sort of, like, reverse pivoting and w- with his left hand. Uh, and it, it was just such a cool play because I, I, like, my favorite thing in basketball is when a shooter gets really hot, especially someone like Ellington, who who is a high-level shooter but doesn't necessarily do it consistently, or at least the season hasn't been very consistent with his shot. And, and all of a sudden, they're they're just having a great night. And, and I love when when teammates recognize that and they're like, okay, we're going to do anything and everything to get you the basketball. And Ellington is just zipping back and forth. The Rockets are trying to keep up with him. And Frank is just able to kind of shuffle it to him for a three part of a five or six minute stretch where Ellington made four threes in the second quarter that ultimately you look at the final margin. I mean, he misses one of those, the Knicks potentially lose this game. 
Uh, Frank also had a really nice uh, blow-by on Robert Covington with 30 seconds left in the first half. I thought that was a good sign given how good of a defender Covington is, and it was sort of um, a flashback to points earlier in the season where you're like, okay, this is a different Frank Nilekina, and that's why he's like a little bit more juice off the dribble. Even though he missed it, I love the confidence where he went between his legs twice and tried to shoot a step-back three in Harden's face just because it was a shot he never, ever would have taken before this season. Um and then he had this little, uh, this one was on, I want to say, I can't remember if it was Rivers or Tucker in the third quarter. Um, it was, he like sprinted to the elbow and it was probably, probably got away with an offensive foul. It was a little bit of a push off, but it was kind of Kobe or Jordan-esque the way he, he like forced the defender to the ground and then just kind of hung in the air and hit a shot from the elbow. And, and it's again, despite the fact that Frank by and large, still a pretty poor offensive player just because of his shooting. There are those little moments where there's something about him that's so aesthetically pleasing to watch. When the shots go in, it just, it looks really good and athletic and natural and almost ballerina-esque in his movements. Like, I don't know if you get that feel from him, Alex, but when it's going good, there there are there's a reason why everyone falls in love with Frank Nilekina. Oh, it's true. There's a, there's like a smoothness to his game. Like, so... To compare him to another Nick who has his up and down moments, right? Like Kevin Knox. The thing with Knox is that he has a very beautiful jump shot. Like I'll say that much. Like, but so does Frank. You know, I think they, I think, ironically, the two guys that struggle the most with consistency on their jumpers, I think, form wise, have the two most beautiful shots on the team. Uh, Frank and and Knox. I think that their shots are fantastic looking. Um, but like Knox, when he plays looks like a baby giraffe sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like he's just, like, bumbling around, you know, and he's he doesn't necessarily – it seems like he doesn't know what he's going to do next, and sometimes his body doesn't know what it's going to do next. You know what I mean? Whereas with Frank, everything always looks calculated. Uh, everything is always smooth, even if it's not perfect. You know, it's – like, if it doesn't finish perfectly, I should say. It's like everything that he does is done with deliberation, and I felt the same in this game. I loved that miss uh, that you mentioned, the trying to basically James Harden, James Harden, and it didn't work out, it didn't go in, but you could feel like the roof of Madison Square Garden ready to blow off had that shot gone in. Uh, and then the other one you mentioned when he <laughs> when he basically like shoved Austin Rivers to the ground, that was fantastic. There was a couple of those in this game that like very like like tough like meme worthy. Uh, uh, also, like, flops by the Rockets that didn't get called. Like, the refs just were not having it in this game. And that one was fantastic. There was another one where Bobby Portis got in the post, which, like, actually shout to Bobby Portis, who had a pretty good game overall for this one, as much as we, you know, crap on him all the time. But he got the ball in the post, and Harden was actually, to his credit, you know, holding him up pretty well, and Portis, like, felt like, okay, I, I need to pass out real quick because Harden was kind of pestering him. Passes it to Frank, and then Frank sees immediately, like, okay, like, Portis can take this matchup. Throws it right back in to Portis. And Portis, like, takes one little, like, butt bounce into Harden, and Harden, like, flies back as if he had just been shot. And uh, and then Portis kind of just lightly turns around and makes a nice little righty layup. <laughs> so there was a number of those in this game. And, and the Knicks got a number of um, charge calls as well, like, you know, against the Rockets, which was great to see. There was the one you mentioned from Frank, and then I think there was another one that came later in the game. Um, that was it, it. Was actually right after he missed that 
potential Harden shot. I, I think that was later, wasn't it? Because um, that, yeah. that was one that was at a pretty key juncture. Frank missed that shot and then came down the floor and uh, set himself up right outside the restricted area. And when I looked at on replay, I was like, you could argue his feet were still moving, but also Russ threw a shoulder into him and everything else. And, you know, it was just one of those moments down the stretch where Frank sort of did what he could to stop Westbrook. Because um, quite frankly, I mean, it, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording because I, I, it was just interesting to me to hear people saying that Frank didn't play good defense on on Westbrook down the stretch. It sort of bugs me because I thought he played great defense. I mean, Westbrook was Westbrook switched on like peak Westbrook mode at the end of the game, and that's like a thirty something per game score. You know, he's he does not mess around when he's really engaged like that. And there was a dunk that uh, I thought was more on Harkless in transition. Because uh, Harkless sort of, well, actually, he was definitely. I mean, Harkless met Westbrook at the point of attack uh, in transition, but the Knicks had numbers, and you know, it, it wasn't like a huge mismatch that he had to play Westbrook back or anything. And Harkless sort of just stood there with his hands up and let Westbrook breeze by, and maybe assuming that Mitch was going to be there or something, but let Westbrook blow by, and Westbrook hit this like huge dunk uh, that almost was like a momentum shifter that sunk the Knicks. Uh, and then there was another one where Westbrook got a, you know, he got a floater inside that he managed to get, but I thought that Frank played him well to the inside and didn't let him get it off uncontested. And Westbrook is just a great player, so he's going to make those shots from time to time. And then another one was, you know, Westbrook got a layup, but it was because Frank got caught up in what was, to be fair, a really nice screen from James Harden. And uh, Harkless sort of just put his hands up again, but let Westbrook just drive right by him and get for the layup. So the the final play, though, I thought Frank played, Westbrook fantastic. Um, that was probably, I don't know, I, probably my highlight of the game, other than the RJ make. You know, I, I thought that Frank really, he took the challenge, and, you know, he's done this before where he, he can show that he can contain some of even the most potent scorers. And, you know, Westbrook had just been, for that whole fourth quarter, just like get to the rim, get to the rim, get to the rim, get to the rim. And it, he was at, like, peak explosiveness and Westbrookness and, you know, could seemingly get by anybody. And Frank managed to keep him in front of him. And that's like all you can ask. You know, you don't want to let him get to the rim. And uh, Frank was sort of shading like he was going to continue defending all the way towards the hoop. And then Westbrook made the business decision that instead of taking a contested layup over Frank, he would take a um, pull-up shot, which is obviously one of Westbrook's favorite shots. But Frank managed to recover enough and jumped up. I mean, he got a hand in Westbrook's vicinity, even if he couldn't get it, you know, on the ball or completely in his face. And, you know, Westbrook bricked the shot, which ultimately is a is a low percentage shot, mid-range shots, even for a guy who kind of feasts on that in Westbrook. So I I know, Gavin, I don't think I'm going to meet any opposition from you on this based off what we were talking about before the show, but I, I thought he had a great defensive game. I, I don't know why... I think people are nitpicking and maybe taking for granted just how good he is on defense, that he's not, like, doing a Mitchell Robinson and, like, just randomly, you know, managing to get enough lift to block that shot by Westbrook at the end of the game. But I thought that he did more than enough to force an unfavorable shot for Westbrook, who sort of had to take it, like, falling to the side a little bit and not completely on balance and obviously didn't end up going in. Yeah, re- rewatching it, I think... 
it's hard to tell because on on first it looks like for one Westbrook is is fouling Frank and then they never they never caught like he's pushing off with his right hand from pretty much the second he gets the basketball and that gave him a little bit of room and I think he he honestly if he could, if he could have that back he had an angle to the bucket where I think he as good as Frank is in terms of recovering with his length I think he would have beaten Frank there the issue would have been Mo Harkless was in the vicinity but the way Harkless was moving like I don't know if Harkless wanted any part of that like I think. I think there was a world where Russ gets to the basket and, and finishes, but he, to your point, Frank was, you could tell, like, I think Frank was thinking that exact same thing, and that, that's a credit to his basketball IQ, and was sort of gunning to beat Russ to the spot, so he could have maybe taken a different angle and gotten all the way there. And, and Russ, I mean, this is this is sort of predictable for anyone who's watched Russell Westbrook over the last decade. He kind of wanted his uh, his Jordan um, over Byron Russell moment and said, oh, I'm just going to pull up and nail this, and it's going to be iconic. It's going to play on my career highlight reel um, instead of just getting a little layup to finish the game. And, and I think he caught kind of got caught up with the glory and being an MSG, and he, he, he made the shot a little bit tougher than he had to. But give Frank credit for possibly anticipating that, and if he didn't, he, he still got a heck of a contempt on it. So I, I, was, uh, I was perfectly content with that. Uh, Alex, unless you had anything else, that's pretty much everything I had on the game. Again, shout out to Wayne Ellington, who made those four threes in the second quarter, had a pretty dirty lefty to righty cross into a three, like early in the fourth. That was maybe my favorite play of his whole season. Bobby Portis, you noted it good offensively, had some, I'm sure th- there were certainly moments where he got caught with his pants down defensively, but also had some good moments defensively, like one where like he forced Harden into a missed layup. That was a really important play in the fourth quarter, but that was, that's essentially all I had in the game. You want to get into this uh, Spike Lee uh, BS, <laughs> for lack of a better term? You know what? No, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to leave this podcast pure. It was the Knicks' best win of the season. I don't want to sully it with any Spike Lee BS, any Knicks media statement BS. We don't need it. This is a great game. We're keeping this podcast safe as is. It'll always be golden in our hearts. And we'll be back tomorrow to go over the Spike Lee stuff. So have a great night. Be good. And tomorrow morning, we'll get into whatever happened with Spike Lee and the Knicks.